please do open your Bibles back up to Acts 13, and we'll be looking at verses 44 down to 52. Acts 13, 44 down to 52. And this evening, I want us to see that the purpose of these verses are here to remind us to trust in the word of the Lord in all circumstances. These verses are here to remind us to trust in the word of the Lord in all circumstances. Which may seem like a strange thing to say to a room full of Christians, but if we're honest, how often do we forget about the word of the Lord in our daily lives? Think with me about three scenarios. The first scenario, you've just fallen into that sin that you keep struggling with. And instead of going to the Lord and confessing your sin, you think, I'll just leave it a couple of days to let him cool down. And in that moment, you are forgetting the word of the Lord. For it tells us to come to him, confess our sins, and he will forgive us and restore us and give us more grace, as we thought about in James throughout the week. Or the second scenario, you're just living your life, and something goes wrong. It doesn't go the way that you expect it to do. And so you start to think, I just need to muster up some extra strength to fix these problems, to get me through. And we've all been there because it's our default. Let me fix it. Let me muster up my own strength. But again, in that moment, We are forgetting the word of the Lord. For the psalmist says that we are to cast our burdens upon him and he will sustain us. Or Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and he will make straight our paths. And then there's the third and final scenario. What about when you're out and you're having an evangelistic conversation or you're in the workplace and it's a hard evangelistic conversation and you feel you're getting nowhere You're just hitting a brick wall. You keep saying the same thing, but it's just bouncing off. In that moment, do you start to doubt the word of the Lord? Do you start to not trust that it is sufficient to bring people to faith? And I think if we're being honest, we can all identify with one of these scenarios or something similar. And I don't bring them up to kind of shame you or guilt trip you or make you feel burdened by them, but rather to highlight that we are forgetful people. We are prone to forget the word of the Lord in our daily lives. And so our passage this evening is here to realign us, to remind us of this truth, that we are to trust in the word of the Lord in all circumstances. And so we'll break up the passage into two scenes. The first scene, just to let you know, is there will be the majority of our time, it's there'll be big um, so don't worry if you get the scene two and think, whoa, this is really long. The first one is the biggest. And so scene one will be from verse 44 down to 49. And the heading we kind of have here is the wickedness of man and the graciousness of God. So scene one, the wickedness of man and the graciousness of God. So please do follow along as we read through these verses. We're going to look at verse 44 first. And it reads, the next Sabbath... Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And so what is this verse doing? It's helping connecting us back to the context. 
This verse connects back to what has just happened, where Paul has preached his glorious sermon showing that Christ is a gracious gift. He's preached it in the synagogue the past, Sunday, the past Sabbath, and, the, and many devout Jews and Greeks have believed. And then they beg Paul and Barnabas to come back the next Sabbath to tell them these things again. And so this is the context to which our verses are set. Though I don't want us to sleep on this verse, for it is glorious. Look back down and see what it says. It says, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. This verse proclaims to us, like gets up in our face and says, the word of the Lord is enough. We can trust in it. We don't need smoke machines, gimmicks, or man's tactics, but we are rather to faithfully and boldly proclaim the word of the Lord, for we can trust in it to get things done. And when I was preparing it, this made me think back to the beginning of Acts, Acts 2 and 42, where we see the early church. And what does it say they do? They gathered They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, so they had the scriptures read and expounded. Then they prayed, and it's not far to think they were praying scripture-orientated prayers, so they prayed the word, and then they broke bread. They took the Lord's Supper just like we did, which proclaims the truths of the gospel to us. And then, though it's not in Acts 2, we know from Galatians and Ephesians that they sang the scriptures, whether that's a psalm, a hymn, or a spiritual song, They sang songs that are grounded in scriptural truths. And so if we sum up what we see in the early church, we could say they were trusting in the word of the Lord to get things done. And we see time and time again that many believed, many believed. The word of the Lord continued to spread. I love that imagery that Simon brought to us, this steam train, this blasting forth, all its opposition and opponents out of the way. Nothing can stop the word of the Lord. It accomplishes all its purposes. And so, what can we take away from this first verse? Well, it's simple. As a local church, let us trust in the word of the Lord to get things done. Let's trust in it, knowing that it's powerful. We don't need those man-made tactics to gather people in. Let us faithfully, patiently proclaim the word of the Lord, knowing that the people will come. And so, let's flow in then to verse 45, which shows us the wickedness of man's heart. So follow along with me. It says, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And so when we read these verses again, let's just situate ourselves and answer some questions. Are these Jews the same Jews that believed in verse 43? Those devout Jews and Greeks who Paul encouraged to continue in the grace of God? Well, no, these are the Jewish leaders They're different. And so why are these Jewish leaders filled with rage and jealousy? And why do they start resorting to reviling Paul? Well, because they had a wrong understanding of the purpose of Israel. They believed that Israel was superior to all the other nations. 
They obviously didn't understand Deuteronomy 7 and 7, where it tells them that God didn't love them because of anything within themselves. It doesn't say that you were better, but he says, I chose and love you, loved you because of my free grace towards you, that I may use you to bless the nations. But these Jewish leaders couldn't grasp this. The crowd of both Jews and Gentiles invoked jealousy within them. And so they started to contradict what Paul and Barnabas were saying. They outright denied the word of the Lord. They didn't want to believe that the plan was all along that Israel was to be a means to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And therefore, in their denial of the word of the Lord, they fulfilled verse 41, where it's quoted from Habakkuk. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your day, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. These Jewish leaders, they became the scoffers because they wouldn't believe, they wouldn't trust the word of the Lord. And so in verse 45, we get a glimpse into the wickedness of man's heart without the grace of God. It shows us our hardness of heart, our unwillingness to believe. And there's a guy, Guy Waters, who sums up well what the Jewish leaders were doing. They were unable to refute the things that Paul was proclaiming, so they resorted to personal abuse. Instead of believing and trusting in the word of the Lord, they resort to wickedness. They resort to cold, hard unbelief. And this would be our story too, if it wasn't for the grace of God. This is man's natural default. We do not and will not believe the word of God. We suppress it. And so as we see the wickedness of man's heart in verse 45, let us praise the Lord for his gracious kindness to opening our eyes. Then flowing into verse 46, we see Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas' response. Follow along again. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. We see Paul and Barnabas not resorting to man's ways and reviling back at the Jewish leaders, but rather they continue boldly proclaiming the word of the Lord. They trust in the word of the Lord over man's words. For God's ways trumps man's ways all day long. They, by faith, didn't resort to natural, the, the, the fight back, but trust it in the word of the Lord. And in, this, in verse 46, I want us to observe two points. Firstly, the Jews' rejection of the word of the Lord that makes them unworthy of eternal life. That's a mouthful, let me read it again. I want us to see, firstly, the Jews' rejection of the word of the Lord that makes them unworthy of eternal life. Or to shorten it, we will see the rejection and then secondly, Paul's declaration that this rejection turns them to the Gentiles. Paul's declaration that this rejection turns them to the Gentiles. So to shorten that, we have the turning. We have the rejection and the turning. 
So firstly, let's focus on this rejection. In this, we see the Jews rejecting the word of the Lord. Look down in verse 46. What does it say? It says that they thrust it aside, which then leads Paul to declare to them that they judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. Why? Because they cut themselves off from the life-giving promises of God's words. Think about it. Paul has just preached the last Sabbath, this glorious sermon, declaring the promises of God, declaring the one who has eternal life. Look down with me in verse 23, and then verses 38 and 39. But 23 says, Of this man's offspring, David, has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. And then cast your eyes down to 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed, justified from everything from which you could, be, could not be freed by the law of Moses. These verses, and Paul was telling them that the only way you can have eternal life is through Jesus Christ. There is no other name in which you can be saved. There's no other name which is salvation. And so if you follow the logic of Paul here, if these Jews reject the word of the Lord, that proclaims that Jesus is the only savior, they therefore cut themselves off from the source of eternal eternal life, Jesus Christ. They judge themselves to be unworthy of eternal life. They bring this judgment upon themselves by rejecting Jesus. And so this has a warning for us here today. It's telling us, it's proclaiming to us, do not make yourself unworthy of eternal life by rejecting Jesus Christ, just as these Jewish leaders did. Paul wants us to see the folly of rejecting Jesus Christ as your savior. To kind of helpfully think about this, imagine you have a terminal illness And you go to see the doctor, and he says, here's the cure. It's free. It will fully cure you. And the person there says, nah, big man, I don't trust you. I'm not going to take your words. I'm just going to keep doing me. And so that person continues doing the thing that is killing them. Maybe it's smoking for lung cancer. Maybe it's drinking for kidney failure. If someone was telling that story, you'd say you're absolutely mad will you not trust the doctor and receive the cure that you need? He, he is doing harm to himself. He's making himself uncurable by not receiving it. It's madness. But that's exactly what the Jewish leaders did and what unbelievers do too. They say to God, I don't trust your words. I don't trust Jesus, the greatest revelation that's ever given to us. And therefore, they cut themselves off from the source of eternal life. And so I want to kind of just narrow in this application and speak to two specific groups. Firstly, the unbeliever. Maybe this is the first time you've ever come to a church. And though you may not put it the way that I've been putting it, in reality, you have been doing this all your life. You have been denying Jesus, suppressing the truth because of your unrighteousness. Or maybe you come to church all your life but you, just like the Jewish leaders, have made yourself unworthy of eternal life by denying Jesus. And so this evening, 
I want, you, I want to call you, whether this is your first time or thousandth time, to receive Jesus. Stop trusting in yourself and condemning yourself to eternal hell, but rather come to Jesus who's offering this free, gracious gift to you. He will be your savior. He will forgive all your sins. All you must do is come to him, receive him, trust in him, and rest in him, knowing that you can trust in the word of the Lord that tells us that Jesus is the source of eternal life. And then secondly, I want to speak to believers, though I just want to make clear, true believers can never be cut off from God. We cannot lose our salvation. Romans 8 boldly gets up in our faces and says, nothing will separate you from the love of of God. So let's have that clear. But there is a sense in which we can cut ourselves off from our life source. Think back to the introduction and when I talked about how at times when we isolate ourselves from God's promises, when we don't trust his word, and the example of when you fall into that sin that has been plaguing you, and instead of going to the Lord, you rather withhold going to him. You don't take his promises and check them in. You cut yourself off from your great high priest, from your advocate who wants to give you forgiveness, restore you, and you do damage to yourself. So rather, trust in the word of the Lord. Spurgeon has a little helpful title of a devotion. It's called The Checkbook of the Bank of Faith. And I think that's a helpful illustration of what we're called to do with the promises of God. We are to take the promises that we find in Scripture, like a check, and we're meant to just go straight to Him and go, like, cash it in, knowing, having a surety that God's like, yeah, give it to me, I'll cash that in. He wants to. He delights in strengthening and comforting His children. You don't keep a check and kind of think, yeah, I've got 100 pounds, but I'm just never check it in. We don't have 100 pounds. We must go with the check, knowing that it won't get filled, but it will be cashed in full. We must, by faith, trust in the word of the Lord, for it sustains us in all circumstances of life. Then secondly, in this verse, we see the turning. We see that Paul says, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Since these Jews have cut themselves off from eternal life, Paul declares that he is now turning to the Gentiles. But what does he mean by this statement? What he can't mean is that he will never preach the gospel to the Jews again because you just cast your eyes to Acts 14. We see that he went into the Jewish synagogue and preached the gospel and many Jews believed. So what's happening here? Well, rather, it means that there's, there will be this pattern that, pattern that is established. As we see, he will go first to the Jews and they will reject it, which brings about the occasion for the ministry of the gospel to the Gentiles. Think about Romans He will preach first to the Jews and then to the Gentile. Or Romans 11 and 11 helpfully gives us insight here. What's What's getting put forward to us? It's saying through their trespasses, the Jews, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And that doesn't mean that he'll never preach to the Jews again, but it means that in this time that he's turning, it brings opportunity to graft in the Gentiles. And this is what we see working out in verses 47 and 49. And so turn with me and look at verse 47. It reads, 
For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So what's Paul being commanded to do? Well, we've just seen he is being commanded to turn and bring the gospel, the word of the Lord, to the Gentiles. And then he affirms this calling by quoting Isaiah 49 and 6. And I want us to think about what Paul is doing here. Is he merely plucking a verse out of thin air and applying it to him regardless of the meaning of the text? No, rather he is teaching us how to read our Bibles. And so I want us to see that Paul is faithfully expounding and applying Isaiah 49 and verse 6. Quickly, if you will, just put your finger in Acts 13 and jump to Isaiah 49 and 6. I just want us to show that Paul is faithfully expounding this text. I just want us to see the first observation to make is that Isaiah 49 and 6 is, the second, is part of the second song of the servant of the Lord in Isaiah. Then secondly, I want us to see that this servant is identified as being Israel in verse 3. We see it. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Well, if we know Israel's history, does the servant of the Lord sound like Israel? Will Israel be the light to the nations and bring salvation to the ends of the earth? No, they fail. And so we ask the question, who is this Israel? And who is this servant of the Lord? Well, two questions. Who is the light of the world and who accomplishes salvation for his people? John 18 and 12 says that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And then Matthew 1 and 21 says that Mary will bear a son and you will call him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus will accomplish salvation for his people. Therefore, Isaiah is pointing to Jesus, who is not only the light, who, who does not only bring light, but is the light of the world. He does not only bring salvation, but accomplishes salvation and is the source of our salvation. Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 49 and 6. six. And so with that laid, let's jump back to Acts 13. But the question still stands. How can Paul say that this commandment is for him and Barnabas? Well, think about a head and a body. Jesus is the head. He is the one who brings the light and accomplishes salvation that goes forth into the earth. But then his body continues that work. His chosen instruments, as Paul is called in Acts 9, he's a chosen instrument of God. Therefore, Jesus continues to fulfill Isaiah 49, verse 6, through his chosen instruments. Paul and Barnabas are now seen as an extension of the servant of the Lord, Jesus, and he continues his work through them. Hopefully you've been able to track with me that Paul is faithfully expounding and applying God's word. But why labor this point? Well, because if Paul misused the Old Testament scriptures, then that undermines the point of this passage, that we are to trust in the word of the Lord, which says, um, trust in the word of the Lord. 
And once we see that Paul has correctly applied the Old Testament, and we see that Jesus is the fulfillment, when we see that the book is one coherent unit that doesn't contradict, this should surely make us say, surely this is the word of the Lord. Do you see the beautifulness that those many years ago in Isaiah, there's promised this one who will bring light and salvation, how Jesus fulfills it, and then he sends forth his body, his chosen instruments to continue it. Hopefully you can see that the Bible declares itself to be the word of God through its majesty and beauty, which then leads us to trust the word of the Lord. And so from this verse, I just want to take one point of teaching. I want us to see that we're not just to be New Testament believers, but rather let us take up and read the Old Testament as Christian scriptures, not just as moral stories, but truths that preach Christ to us. For this is how the apostles read the Old Testament, and this is how Jesus reads the Old Testament. He says in Luke 24, that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Be encouraged. Take up and read the Old Testament. See that it proclaims Christ to us. I love B.B. Warfield's analogy. It's not that we're adding Jesus into the Old Testament or we're adding the apostles in, but it's like a room that is fully furnished that hasn't had the lights turned on. And when Jesus comes, the Holy Spirit opens and turns on the lights so that we can see it for all its glory. We can plumb the Old Testament for its death. We can read Genesis 3 and see that that seed is not speaking about Jesus merely, but it is Jesus. No other seed in Genesis fulfills the the serpent head's crusher fulfillment. Or we can read Leviticus And we can see Christ in there as we read of all the blood that needs to be shed so they can vertically stay in the land. And this makes us despair saying, how sinful are we? What blood is so pure that can fully cleanse us? Ephesians says, in him we have redemption through the shedding of his blood. Leviticus preaches Christ to us. Or think about Micah and Micah 7 that says that Simon, this prayed that our sins will be cast into the sea, our sins will be trampled on the foot, never to be seen again. Can Israel itself bring that about? No, but the true Israel, Jesus, brings it about. He is the one who is the light, who accomplishes salvation for the ends of the earth, and then through his chosen instruments, through his church, by the preaching of God's word, brings many people to salvation. Therefore, let us trust in the word of the Lord, both Old Testament and New Testament, for they are both Christian scriptures. And so flowing from verse 47 to verse 48 and 49, we see that Paul and Barnabas do as they are commanded and take the word of the Lord to the Gentiles. Read with me verse 48 and 49, which says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. As, a me- as, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. In verse 48, we see the Gentiles responding to the word of the Lord by rejoicing and glorifying in it. They receive Jesus as the promised Savior and trust in the word of the Lord. In the, in the word of the Lord, 
And we're to see this stark contrast between the, Jew, uh, the Gentiles and the Jewish leaders. We see that one believes and rejoices in the word of the Lord, and one rejects it and rebels against it. But why? For there isn't anything special about the Gentiles. They are just as dead, as, as dead in their sins as the Jewish leaders. So why do they believe here? Why do they hear the word of the Lord and then trust in it? Well, Luke answers our question by telling us that as as many were appointed to eternal life believed. What does this mean? It means that all who God had chosen in Jesus before the foundation of the world, in the, before the foundation of the world to be saved, believed. But why does Luke bring up the doctrine of election in this passage? It's not here to stir up controversy, but rather to give us confidence and encouragement in our evangelism. Think back to verse 45, where we've seen the wickedness of man's heart without the grace of God. Our natural default is rebellion against God. It's cold, hard unbelief. We would rather distort the word of God and believe our own lies, as the Jewish leaders do in this passage, than trust in the word of the Lord. And if this was all that we had, if this was the only truth that we've seen, we could be discouraged in our evangelism. We could be tempted to use man's tactics. But rather, Luke gives us this doctrine of election, this saying to give us encouragement and confidence that all who were appointed to eternal life will believe. And you may be thinking, well, does the doctrine of election not this maybe stop evangelism? Uh, evangelism? Well, it doesn't. Spurgeon has this helpful saying. He says that if he knew the elect and they had blue stripes up their backs, he'd run around pulling up people's shirts. But we don't know who the elect are, so he preaches the gospel to whoever will listen Why? Because he recognizes the means that has been ordained to bring people to faith is the word of the Lord. And so that's what we see look masterfully tied together in these verses. We see that he pairs the cause and the means of these Gentile believers' salvation in these verses. The means by which they are brought to faith is the word of the Lord. And that is true for all believers The means by which we are brought to faith is through the hearing of the Lord's words. But we are also told the cause of this belief, which is they were appointed to eternal life. God chose them. And this is again true for all believers. We believe because we were appointed to eternal life. Not because there was anything within us that was worthy to be picked but rather because of God's love and graciousness towards us. It's pure grace. Though, let us then just think more about this doctrine of election. Let's think specifically how it gives us confidence and evangelism in specific scenarios. Think back again to my introduction and that final scenario where you're having that hard evangelistic conversation with a work colleague, a friend, a family member, and that this feels like you're hitting a brick wall over and over again. How does this doctrine of election and these verses that tell us the means by which people are brought to faith give us confidence 
and encouragement in that scenario? Well, firstly, we can know with certainty that all who were appointed to eternal life will believe. And then secondly, we can know for certain that the word of the Lord is the means by which people are brought to faith so we can trust in it. It takes the burden off of us. We don't have to feel after, oh, if I just said this, if I just did this, or maybe you're thinking, I have to have a really intellectual mind and be all up into the newest philosophical ideas. No, this, doct- this doctrine of election and the means of the word of God to save people liberates the believer. It allows us just to faithfully tell anyone who will listen about Jesus because we know that not one of God's sheep will be lost, but all his sheep will hear his voice and come to him. We recognize that it's not on us and our performance. We cannot mess it up. We're only called to be faithful in communicating God's word to whoever will listen. Therefore, let us trust in the word of the Lord to get things done in evangelism because it's God's ordained means. Moving then to our second scene, which is verses 50 to 52, which we have the title, Continued Wickedness and Continued Graciousness. Just to highlight, this is going to be shorter than our first scene. Read with me verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout woman of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Again, we see the Jewish leaders reacting wickedly towards the word of the Lord. Instead of rejoicing with the Gentile believers as they see the word of the Lord being fulfilled in front of their eyes, they rather resort to wickedness and rebellion, stirring up the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city to drive Paul and Barnabas out of the district. They would rather continue believing their lies about Paul and Barnabas. And this first, this shows us the stark reality that there is ever only two responses to the word of the Lord. Either people receive it and rejoice in it and glorify it, or people reject it and rebel against it. Though if we remember the main point of this passage, we can take comfort. We can know that the word of the Lord never goes out void, never returns void, but accomplishes all its purposes. We can trust in the word of the Lord to get things done. We can trust in the word of the Lord in all circumstances. Verse 40, 51 then, please look down. But they shook off the dust from their feet and again against them and went to Iconium. In these verses, we see Paul and Barnabas respond to the Jewish leaders' continued wickedness by shaking off the dust from their feet, which may seem strange to us at first glance. But Jesus explains why they did this in Luke 9 and 5, where it says, wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Or Paul kind of helpfully expands that again by in Acts 16, 18 and 6 by saying, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. This symbolism links back to verse 46 where the Jewish leaders have judged themselves unworthy of eternal life by rejecting the word of the Lord and therefore Paul and Barnabas shake off the dust from their feet and say, your blood be on your own heads 
for you have rejected the word of the Lord and made yourself unworthy of eternal life. This verse then helps us to think about evangelism and it tells us that there's a valid time in evangelism when to pursue someone and when to pull back from someone. And that can be hard to discern when to push and when to pull. And so I just encourage you to pray, seek wisdom, speak to mature believers, speak to other church members and pray for them. But ultimately, trust in the word of the Lord, knowing that it is sufficient to save the most unlikely of sinner. Sow the seed of the word, knowing that the Lord gives the growth in his time. And sometimes it can be hard when you've been trying to evangelize someone and it feels like they've just slammed the door in your face metaphorically and you kind of do draw back. But the Lord in his wisdom could be putting you there as the first person and 20 odd people having their faces slammed in the door could be ministering the word of the Lord to him and then you will see that individual in glory. So again, this doctrine of election and the means of the word gives us confidence to trust in the word of the Lord in all circumstances. And then this to finish, verse 52, read along. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. What a great verse to end with. For it reminds us that in the midst of persecution or great challenges or whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, we can be filled with joy through the Holy Spirit ministering to us as the Holy Spirit ministered to these new believers in Antioch, illuminating their minds to see the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ, their Savior. And the Holy Spirit likewise does the same for us as we read his word, as we take his life-giving promises, the Holy Spirit illuminates our minds, encourages us, sustains us, refreshes us through his word. Therefore, let us be people who trust in the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that exposes our sin but shows us the hope of eternal life in your Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for him. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that opens our eyes to see the glory and beauty of you in your word who ministers to us, declaring your love to us, Help us, therefore, to be people who are spirit-filled and are filled and delight themselves in the word of the Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. We're now going to sing, I Heard the Voice of Jesus Say, a great hymn that reminds us of the heart of Christ towards us. Let's stand and sing as the musicians start to play.
the Lord's. In Corinthians 13 and 14, it says, the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of, the, of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.